Hello listeners, John here. Just before we start, Liz was using the wrong microphone and so I am aware she is in a cave. I apologise for her being in a cave. She will not be in a cave next week. That was the Octothought Podcast and it's goodbye from me. <laughs> Still eating with Muffin, that was very, very quick. Hang on. You were not expecting the end of the podcast after you finished your last pick. Nobody expects the end of the podcast. That's why we give them the beep. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very 103rd episode of Octothorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom which is winging its way to you on the 15th of February 2024, just in time for that post-Valentine's Day lull. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And speaking of Valentine's Day, we have some letters of comment, and one of them is from Christopher J. Garcia. Hurrah who I think we can all agree is the Cupid of science fiction fandom. Uh, he says that this is the best of all episode art. And he was not wrong. It was pretty damn good. And Raj wrote in on Mastodon to say, Bohemian Coast, do you happen to have a gallery or something somewhere with your cover art for Octothorpe and other fan art? I'd like to find examples I can provide for Hugo nomination purposes. So, Alison, do you have a website? It is great that you should say that because I do in fact have a website which is called something like alisonscottfanart.adobeportfolio.com. I don't know if that's exactly right, but we will definitely put the real link in the show notes. And I just got ambushed with that query. So thanks for that. Yay. Thanks for everyone who said lovely things about the cover because, yeah, no, I, I, spent two, I spent two full weeks giggling about it before I actually delivered it. So, <laughs> uh, yes. But thanks for your lovely letter, Chris. He did say, the thing I find so disheartening is that a member of the Hugo subcommittee flat out said she knew that votes were thrown out due to a slate and no one seems to care. I've heard this as a rumour, but I've not seen anything written down that says it or anything on the record. So if you are out there and you have this report, if you'd like to report it to us in a bit more cogent way so that we can talk about it, we'd love that. Thank you. If it's true, it's very damning is it so so chris does say there's no more perfect description of dave than arrogant haughty and insolent and i'm gonna have to start using that and i am slightly regretting that i've already put my ribbon order in for gallifrey one but at glasgow will there be ribbons that say arrogant haughty and insolent i could definitely make one also there is no more perfect description of dave than arrogant haughty and insolent um but what about hugo pope I mean, I'm definitely considering cosplaying as the Hugo Pope. Oh, my God. And Hugo Boss. Apparently, Dave McCarty, for those who have not heard this, was signing autographs at Chengdu with the words Hugo Boss. Which, fun fact, is not something that a member of the Mark Protection Committee should ever do because there have been letters exchanged with Hugo Boss about the Hugo trademarks. So, firstly, there's only one Hugo Boss and it's a clothing company. And secondly, there's only one Hugo Boss, and it's a comedian called Joe Lysett. And thirdly, Dave McCarty is the boss of precisely nothing except for bad decisions. And fourthly, we don't have a Hugo Boss because we did have a Hugo Boss. It's likely that none of this would ever have happened. If Dave McCarty is the Hugo Pope, then Nicholas White should be the Hugo God. Hugo Cardinal. Chris also says Liz does need to offer her services as vote rigger for all sorts of awards. Liz, are you available on commission? What are your rates? <laughs> I actually want to say, Nicholas, Nicholas, please, please write in with your preferred Hugo title and then we'll use it in future. <laughs> Hugo Messiah, perhaps. Hugo Tsar, perhaps? Yeah. Really, whatever, whatever you would like. <laughs> Mark Plummer of Croydon wrote to us and said, this is not a comment on Octothorpe 102, as I haven't listened to it yet. Did you know that Liz's entry in ISFDB contains a note saying, perhaps a thinly disguised pseudonym for a person called Elizabeth? Dun, dun, dun. Liz, did you know this? <laughs> I can reveal exclusively on this podcast that, yes, it is a... a very thinly disguised pseudonym. In fact, someone not even call it a pseudonym, but maybe just a nickname. 
I figured this out. Actually, someone pointed it out to me a few months ago, and one, I was surprised I had an ISFDB entry, but apparently I do for like doing some layout for Vector years ago. Um, but also, I realised ISFDB are very obsessed with properly, well, properly naming, listing all possible pseudonyms, alternative names, etc., to the point where they do do some really weird and quite unwarranted stuff, I think. For example, Lee Mandelo, um, who has changed name, is listed under like their previous name. And I think they've only just managed to get it changed to like list their correct name. If you look up the author S.L. Huang, it says, you know, legal name removed at author's request. Um, and if you look up some of the authors who have changed name, then it kind of lists everything under their that they wrote under their previous names, even in cases where they've maybe been republished under their new name. It's just weird, right? It's just trying to be super completist about publication, but not really thinking that there's an actual person here who maybe does not want to be reminded every time someone looks up their ISFDB page that they, they had a previous name. I mean, in, in my case, this is a nickname and I do not care, but it is a bit kind of, it seems to have improved a bit, but is it something I think people are not aware of? I, I think the obsession with pseudonyms dates from a time when a lot of science fiction authors wrote under a vast number of different names in order to sell multiple stories in the same month to magazines. So obviously at that point, a lot of people did a ton of very painstaking work to work out who all of these pseudonyms are. And they've they've kind of forgotten that actually there is there are lots of other reasons why you might not use your complete legal name to write fiction or do whatever it else you do in, in the science fiction space. And And you certainly might not want your previous names to be included so you know i will say liz that this combined with the vote fixing it's really starting to look bad for you (laughs) (laughs) it is i'm never gonna i'm never gonna be hugo administrator now (laughs) have you now or when did you stop rigging votes liz (laughs) uh we also heard from dc who had caught up with octothorpe we've not heard from dc for a while thank you very much for writing in dc and they say that the phrase useful idiots was pinging around in their head as well so yeah it's a very useful very useful term for what is going on i think and um dc also thanks liz for the work in looking at the stats and thank and congratulates us on our 100th episode we do have to protect lenin's honor Turns out the phrase useful idiot comes from American newspapers in the 40s and 50s, probably, because uh, I did some, I fell down an internet rabbit hole after editing that podcast. Uh, but it is a very useful phrase, regardless. So, yes. Thank you for writing in DC. Then it's probably okay at this point. <laughs> That's going to be the episode title. He's probably not listening. Probably. <laughs> uh, Liz, do you want to do some blue skis? We will do some blue skis. Um,. I have to say that I have... Is it pronounced... So I listened to a stream and someone called it Blue Ski. It cannot be pronounced Blue Ski, can it? I don't pronounce it Blue Ski. I'm going to pronounce it Blue Sky. But if you want to pronounce it Blue Ski, you know... Okay, good. I'm I'm casual about it. I'm going to call it Blue Sky, though. I should say that I have the keys to the Blue Sky account and somehow I managed to post the wrong link to the podcast last time. So apologies and thank you to everyone who pointed that out. This is not like you know learned incompetence that someone else does the blue sky i'm gonna get it right thank you to uh kevin from hugo girl who commented uh say it was nice to hear people say that you know the hugo is still something to be proud of as they are 2023 winners so thank you very much kevin and uh, robert archie who is also martin uh does comment to say that a welcome bid being initiated by enthusiastic but inexperienced fans and then taken over by those with more business and organizational experience is far from unknown in the west i think that may be true i don't know i don't go far enough back into Worldcon bid history to have been personally involved with one then but it, it does seem plausible that some people enthusiastically start one and then have to be rescued by people who actually know how to organize things But in this case, it seems like it really was business experience in that, you know, they were doing business. Not that they were taking their business experience and using it to run Worldcons, but they were running the Worldcon a bit more like a business. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know whether this has ever happened in a Western convention that was not a Worldcon. But certainly I do not think this has ever happened in quite this way in a Western Worldcon. I think there is a there is a difference here. Yes, I mean, not not like this. Not like this. And also, it had already been taken over by big business at the time of the vote. Let's be clear here. The people who run it were the people who or, who engineered the all, all the streams and making sure that lots and lots and lots of um, Chinese SF fans were involved. So that, was, that was all done by Science Fiction World. I will also note 
that if this happened with a US con, we'd also be angry about it. Or a Western con, I should say. Like, look at how much criticism there was of Raytheon sponsoring the Hugos. Like, we are not shy about letting world cons know in the West when we feel their corporate influences have been unsuitable. And there have been there have been a lot of times where fandom has, has reacted very strongly to that. So I don't... I, I will also say, I think if the same thing happened in a Western con, we would be having very similar conversations. Oh, yes. I just want to say this isn't really a letter of comment, but I just wanted to give a shout out and a thank you to Mike Glyer from File 770. Um, when we were putting together the links for the show notes in the last episode, I emailed Mike to ask whether he would mind tweaking a file 770 post um to make it a better roundup of what was going on for our show notes and he extremely kindly obliged uh, and he did not have to do that so thank you very much to mike and obviously we linked file 770 a lot in the show notes uh and we mention it a lot on the pod but i don't think we ever necessarily sing its praises it's real good guys i think the, the fact that the amount that we're relying on file 770 is a good indication of file 770's criticality to the genre at times like this and how what a lot of good work Mike and his team have been doing. Yeah, and especially when stuff is split across streams and, you know, the last remnants of Twitter and then bits of Blue Sky and bits on Mastodon and bits on blogs, you know, it is good to have somewhere that kind of, if you just read File 770, you'll basically know what's going on. File 770, pretty great website. Ali Baker Brooks wrote to us to say, I am now Octothorpe complete with your latest episode. So well done, Ali. And I'm just going to remind people that you do not have to listen to all of them. There are 102 of them. That's quite a lot. You don't have to, but we, we, it, does, it does give me the warm fuzzies whenever someone says they have. But there's no obligation. But it is, it is nice, though. <laughs> Thank you, Ali. Yeah, I mean, if you want to give John the warm fuzzies, this is a way to do it. Fora writes to say, I agree with Liz on the gifts. One week in China with my university and I had to either buy a new suitcase or just abandon things. Farah left the paperweight and the framed artwork behind. Yeah, it was a framed print of Dave McCarty. <laughs> I guess that's getting cut, but I still think it's funny. Liz has given us a look. Also on Facebook, Ming says, pondering a crowdfunder for 30 pieces of silver. I didn't get that. I'm bereft. It's, it's like Dave McCarty is the devil, right? Or, or Judas. I see. Okay, that's quite good. Farah also asks whether a collected comic could be included in the best series, and the answer is yes if it's very, very, very long, I think Liz said. Well, there's a word limit. 240,000 words. The minimum number of words for being a best series, so it would have to be an extremely wordy comment, and I don't think you can get word counts for comics, and I don't think a picture counts as a thousand words for the purposes of best series. I, I think that that's one of these things that's been discussed in the past on Hugo's. There is a journal called the Journal of Geophysical Research and when they were making the change from um, doing their fees in terms of how many pages it would be in the physical journal, uh, they, they obviously changed that when it became clear that journals were going to be primarily PDFs and so that didn't really make sense as a uh, model and they decided that they would do publication units and a publication unit was 500 words or one figure and the editor did note this does of course mean we are devaluing the picture uh and i thought that was a very good uh very good comment from him um james shields points out in terms of series that all of the collected judge dread strips from 2000 ad um are easily going to go over 240,000 words because there's about 2,400 issues. So you don't need 100 words an issue, and obviously there's a lot more than that. So um, we're going to be talking about Hugo nominations in a subsequent episode, but you can expect to see the collected Judge Dread from 2000 AD on my best series list. All right, so um, I need you guys to do Bat John because it's not often that I'm the one that goes to the Wisps Constitution. na 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 Bat John! I think comics are not eligible in best series. And I think the reason is 3.2.7, which provides that the categories of best novel, novella, novelette, short story and series shall be open to non-interactive works in which text is the primary form of communication. And I think it would be argued that in a comic, the text is as important as the graphics and is therefore not primary. I think the graphics are also primary, I suppose. But I, I think the intent is that graphic novels are not eligible in any of the novel, novella, novelette, short story and series categories 
the thing is that if you rule comics are eligible for series, I think it also makes them eligible for short story novelette, novella and novel. And I think that opens a can of worms. So is my is my belief it must be in graphic story. Oh, <laughs> can of graphic worms. Oh, I'm going to write a massive series entirely comprised of ASCII art now. <laughs> well, and also, like, it is the sort of thing where I can see a Hugo administrator. If there was an overwhelming will of the voters... I don't know what you'd do, but it would be interesting. I feel like Hugo Messiah Nicholas White would let the overwhelming will of the voters have its way. Yeah, um, if the Hugo Holy Ghost Nicholas White could write in and let us know uh, what his... Oh, he can't this year uh, because he's actually the Hugo administrator, right? (laughs) I think Big Hugo Banana is his official job title. (laughs) So we won't be offended uh, if the Hugo Zephyr Beeblebrox does not write in and tell us what the skinny is here, because it might be a conflict of interest. Zephyr Beeblebrox isn't a title, is it? His title was like President of the Universe or something. So if you go President of the Universe, Nicholas. Nicholas is just this guy, you know. <laughs> oh, that means it all has to stay in. God damn it, Liz. <laughs> The BSFA long list was, is out. In fact, it was out two weeks ago, but we were a little bit busy with another award uh, having some problems, so we, we didn't get to it. But basically, the BSFA long list, as I understand it, there is now like a, a multi-stage nomination process. There's a long list in which all BSFA members can nominate things to be on the long list, and then there's the long list, and then you can vote for those things on the long list to be on the short lists. And then you can vote for the shortlists and all the Eastcom members can also vote on the shortlist. So the BizFave put out the long list, which, you know, I'm I'm fine with this as a thing. I think there have been cases in the past where the BSFA have not had a lot of nominations in certain categories. And so putting out kind of a long list of things people can go and check out and then nominate their favourites and then vote on the favourites seems good. But I'm pretty sure what they did is they took a big, like, Google Doc or something that people have been dumping their long list nominations in, and then they just put it onto the internet. And I think they could have maybe done a bit of editing first, because, for instance, there's quite a lot of errors. They probably do need to do a certain amount of eligibility checking before posting. I think there's, there's, there's quite a lot of errors in it. The things like, there's quite a lot of misspelled names, which is just, like, it's not good for if you turn up on the long list and your name is spelled wrong. There's some things that possibly are eligible but in the wrong category and so they could really do with being moved before lots of people nominate them and then you have to move them later, things like that. And and something we should remember for next year, which is that the BSFA long list, in order to get things on the long list, you have to remember to read your BSFA email at exactly the right time and and then vote before the end of the year, which is really unusual for awards. N- normally awards nominations happen at the beginning of the new year rather than on 31st of December because <laughs> 31st of December is too early, right? Because stuff could still be being published. I know in practice not very much is published between in the last two weeks of December, but it could be and it should be. It should get its fair shout at eligibility. Mm, that is true. I think it's just the kind of compressed time-wise because they've got to do all this process before the EasterCon, which this year is March. Yes, but they could still ask for the long list by the middle of January instead of the end of December. Right, the long list is out. If you are a BSFA member, you can now go and vote and move things onto the shortlist. Um, there are new categories this year. Um, I think they generally did want to sort of split their short fiction category, but I don't quite... It was not clear to me what is best short fiction and what is best shorter fiction. I think it's just not a good name. Um, there's also a best short non-fiction category. Uh, there is still a best fiction for younger readers category, which only has eight items in, which means... You know, that could be literally eight people and then it goes through to a short list of five. Probably could be one person. Can I put so many things on the long list? I can't remember how many. It doesn't it doesn't say there is a ton of interest in this. It's unusual because there is like a lot of YA out there and you know the low star is showing there is a bunch of stuff, but obviously it's not quite caught on among the Beers of Bay members. But anyway, if you're a Beers of Bay member, go have a look, read things, um uh nominate them. I'm wondering whether a learned person who listens to this podcast and who knows about children's literature could provide recommendations to the BSFA voting membership about what they might want to read from a given year. Because I I don't really have a very good view of any of this at all, uh, and so I think having that would be helpful. And I'm not mentioning any names, Ali. Oh, so you mean someone who consistently listens to this podcast? (laughs) 
<laughs> that was the BSFA Awards. Obviously, the thing you all need to vote for is All These Worlds, Reviews and Essays by Neil Harrison. Okay, so next up on our list this week is fan funds, and we have three fan funds, um, and they are at slightly different stages of happiness. Right, so TAF is running a race from North America to Europe to attend the Glasgow Wilcon, and it is happening now, and you can vote online or probably by other routes as well. And there are two candidates who are Vanessa Applegate and Sarah Gulder. And they are both lovely, lovely people and they've put their um, explanations in and you should go and vote for one of them. I kind of like seeing who people's nominators are. So Vanessa has been nominated by Dave O'Neill, Chuck Surface, Francesca Maiman, Alyssa Wales and somebody called John Coxon. Hello there. Sarah has been nominated by Chris Garcia, Sean and McGuire. Kevin Roach, James Bacon, and Johan Angelmark. So I would say that is a good set of nominators on both accounts. But I think we could probably say that this podcast is supporting Vanessa, can we? We don't have any um, strong reasons not to say that. This podcast supports TAF. Yeah. And you should vote for whoever you think is best, listener. I My nomination probably gives a clue as to which way I am leaning. But... Go read them. They're both great people. I've worked with them both on Fanish Endeavours. They would both be extremely good TAF delegates. I will be voting for Vanessa in one and Sarah in two. Hopefully one of those people will be at the Worldcon. They've started an EFF race. This is the European Fan Fund, which will bring a lucky European fan to the Eurocon, which is in Rotterdam in mid-August this year. The candidates here are Jane Mondrop, and Euro Penchev, Jane, I think, lives in Denmark. And Euro comes from Bulgaria. They're both great candidates, I think. Um, though in this case, I do not know either of them. <laughs> so it's the other way around from the um, TAF race. I agree with Alison. And on Guff, Guff have issued a call for candidates. Um, Guff is going to bring somebody from Australia or New Zealand or, or the um pacific islands i guess so that sort of area to the glasgow Worldcon, and um we'll have a link to that call for nomination so if you are in that part of the world and you would like a free trip to the uk then do not under any circumstances um self-exclude <laughs> this is a great opportunity i love doing guff and um people should um get their nominations in we like fan funds fan funds are good So a committee has been formed to bring the 85th Worldcon to Montreal, Canada in 2027. Um, yeah, it basically looks to be many of this, well, many of the same people as did 2009, I think. Although we don't really know who they all are yet. They don't have a website. Oh no, they do have a website. Ignore me. They do have a website, it just doesn't have the names on it. Alright, they do have a website. Um, it's led by Terry Fong, who has been involved in lots of uh, Canadian conventions they plan to use the same venue as 2009, which I think everyone liked. Yeah, and the other bid for 2027 was Tel Aviv. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know if they just completely give up, but I'm pretty sure that Montreal is going to be more popular than Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is a more challenging venue now than it was when they first formed that bid. There is an update on the uh, Tel Aviv bid website, presumably a free, fairly recent one, saying that all the members of the committee are safe and they're devastated by the recent attacks and they basically betting that things will stabilise and they will be able to continue. But I don't know for how long that is going to seem plausible as we get closer to the actual 2025 vote. That's true, yes. I, I will also say that um, all the Montreal in 2027 free um, sports and so on have funny names <clears throat> which appeals to me um so if you give them 20 dollars, you can have a nifty ribbon with lemmings you know i like that donation only no membership tier really you had to do this no lemming ribbon for you you get a black ribbon so there okay so i have just looked it up on one of their tiers is named after an owl Ooh. so funny animal tiers we approve um so well good to, good luck to them i really enjoyed montreal in 2009 
think we need to say Pemacon was not an unalloyed success and I think we'll probably want to ask this bid what it's going to be doing to make sure that some of the mistakes Pemacon made are not repeated in 2027. But nevertheless, um, I think most people would much rather see a Montreal Worldcon than a Tel Aviv one at the moment. Yes. So Montreal and Tel Aviv will be being voted on in Seattle in 2025. The bid that will be being voted on in Glasgow will be the LA bid for 2026. That bid's currently unopposed, we believe. Uh, We were very sorry to hear of the death of Chris Priest since we last recorded. Um, He was obviously a huge um, towering force in in British science fiction and really responsible for a lot of the more literary SF that was produced as in in, actually over his fantastic career. Obviously, he has some success towards the end of his career with his book, The Prestige, was picked up by Christopher Nolan and turned into a an excellent movie. Um, but, but he'd been writing wonderful, challenging, thoughtful books for a very, very long time. He was also one of the first science fiction authors, possibly the first science fiction author of any note that I, I met because he came to talk to Custis while I was um, one of the officers. And in fact, my flatmate, my roommate and I fed him breakfast because we put him up in the college, but we were the Cuspus was too cheap to um to actually stand him breakfast at the buttery, so we cooked him eggs and bacon in our in our room, which I I think seems appalling to me now, but was kind of just the sort of thing we did back in the eighties. Sorry, Chris. For those who are unaware, Cuspus is the Cambridge Science Fiction Society. Cuspus Cambridge University Science Fiction Society. I mean, whenever whenever John was talking about um, Imperial and how they were perhaps not the most organised, I, I cast my mind back to some terrible things that we did when we were students. Oh, I mean, my my opinion of that came from the same when I was a student involved in my student societies. Like, I am not expecting... I guess that's, that's where all that comes from, is like, I know what I was like, and I am not expecting uh, the students of today to be any better than I was. <laughs> No, I, I never met Chris Priest, but I did see him on panels at Novacom 50 and at the most recent satellite convention where he was a guest of honour. And he was witty and erudite and incredibly grumpy. And he was very good to listen to on panels for that reason. Yes, I mean, he wrote, you know, a whole a whole range of really, really good novels. I think, you know, the time I came into fandom was about the time that, like, everyone was talking about the separation well, we'd won the Beer Fay Award and then won the Clark Award. It was about the time I was starting to pay attention to the Clark Award, I think. And then I read a lot of his subsequent books, filled in a lot of the backstory. The Prestige is a great novel, as well as being turned into a great film. The glamour, the affirmation, you know, inverted world. It feels completely different to all the rest of them, but it's great. He wrote some really, really good stuff. And he was also very incisive. And I think he had a reputation for being grumpy, maybe because he was on panels. And he was famously very grumpy about the Clark Award one year. The Glasgow Worldcon also linked to... Was that the year he wasn't nominated? I think that is a bit harsh. But yeah, he was very curmudgeonly about it. And he also was on panels. And so when I had occasion to email him for convention stuff, I was always a bit worried that he was going to be really, really grumpy. And he was perfectly nice. I think it was very much a, this is this is the way he exists. And he was curmudgeonly about the Clark Award but I think because he genuinely did want to see really great stuff nominated for the Clark Award and he felt that that year it was not. I, I am going to quote from the Guardian's article on on Christopher Priest's rant. The judges should be fired or forced to resign says Priest and the 2012 award suspended if his quote Moss's suggestion is taken up he says and enough people believe the proposal was made in his own interest he would then withdraw his own novel The Islanders from the running. That was 11 years ago. Good God. 12 years ago. Absolute titan of the genre uh, will be sorely, sorely missed. Uh, the Glasgow Worldcon linked to his 2005 Guest of Honour speech at Worldcon, which I don't think I don't think I went to that or I missed it or haven't remembered, but it is, it is quite funny because, you know, he goes on to say about how, you know, the Guest of Honour at British Easter Convention gave a speech of mind-numbing tediousness. I'm too polite to name him. And then, like... You know, two paragraphs later, accidentally names it was Larry Niven. Um, and it goes on like that. We're really sad. He was one of the, possibly the greatest British science fiction author. And we miss him. And it's a shame. 
Yeah, so for listeners who are unaware, the Hugos are a popularly voted award that's given out by a convention called the Worldcon. So we're going to start with the trademark kerfuffle. There was a Twitch stream in which Mike Dunford and Will Frank, both of whom are lawyers who specialise in sort of intellectual property and trademarks, talk about the Hugo Awards due to a thing that happened on the internet. It's related to, but slightly separate from, the stuff we discussed last episode about Chengdu, but it is related to the pickup I put in last episode about Kevin Stanley being reprimanded. Effectively, Kevin Stanley said at great length on a variety of social media platforms that there's no way for the Mark Protection Committee to enforce any rules on the Worldcon who is administering the Hugo Awards. There is a problem when you say that in US trademark law. And the analogy given in the stream basically goes something like this. We we will link to the full stream if you want more details because I am not a trademark lawyer. This is my understanding of what a trademark lawyer said. So basically, if you go to McDonald's, you are expecting a certain level of service and your personal opinions listener about McDonald's, notwithstanding. So if you go into McDonald's and you order a Big Mac, you can expect a certain thing to be given to you. And the thing the trademark basically warrants is that the thing you get is the thing you expect to get. And so the trademark effectively is to do with your perception of the business and the standard of the service the business will provide to you. The problem is that that mechanism requires the company that controls the trademark to be able to take the trademark away if the quality of the service rendered is subpar. And if the owner of the trademark publicly says repeatedly that they have no mechanism with which to do that, they invalidate their trademarks under US trademark law because that is a key part of US trademark law. And so by saying all of this, Kevin might have inadvertently opened the Hugos up to legal challenges. The reason that's the case is because if you do something that you suspect might get you sued... In the US, you can sue first. So you can basically sue to say, we think we might get sued and we want to sue to establish that the thing we are doing, we can't be sued for. And so if someone starts awarding a Hugo Award, they could sue Worldcon Intellectual Property Inc. preemptively, basically saying, we think you might sue us, but you don't have standing to sue us, so we can sue you first. Basically, if someone does start awarding Hugo Awards, they could preemptively sue and then win a case that says we can award our own Hugo Awards because the trademark is null. That is my understanding of the Twitch stream. Liz, do you have any things that you think I have misrepresented or got wrong in my capacity as definitely not a lawyer? No, because I would say I am also definitely not a lawyer. I didn't finish the entire stream, but that does appear to be the gist is that like there are multiple things involved in having service marks or trademarks and there's lots of bits I wasn't aware of that you kind of should be doing. I would also say that, like, I've followed Mike Dunford on Twitter, Blue Sky, whatever, for a while. And so, you know, I think a good goal, aim in life is to not do something which is legally so daft that Mike Dunford uh, does a whole stream about it. It's a good rule of thumb. (laughs) All right. Alison, do you have any penetrating and incisive questions? I have a couple of not necessarily penetrating and incisive comments. Um, The first is, I am not a lawyer, but my actual day job involves working very closely with detail of American trademark and copyright law all of the time. They are not the same thing, but this one's, in this case, we're talking about trademarks, not copyright. Um, but yes, I think my understanding is that you are complete. That is a completely correct summation of my understanding of the US position as it as it is operated. So if you have, it seems likely that you have therefore represented the stream correctly rather than than that they said it wrong and then you correct inadvertently said it right afterwards you know, yeah. but my second point is that i just wanted to say when you were talking about the big mac um because you know when you go to a harvester you know what you're going to get you're never disappointed at a harvester um and you're both looking at me completely blankly so i don't think i've ever been to a harvester i don't know if liz has ever been to a harvester no this is a joke about greg wallace have you heard that Je- greg wallace has been in the news no i it's a popular culture reference my lad i'm sorry <laughs> it's also worth noting i don't know if i noticed noted this in my big old diatribe about trademarks um will frank who was on the stream 
was the vice Hugo administrator under Dave McCarty as Hugo administrator on a previous Worldcon, and he does have some uh, choice words to say about Dave. Um, so, like, I don't necessarily want to get into that again, but like, if you if you want to listen to someone saying things about Dave McCarty, then you can go and do that. That is why Kevin was reprimanded. The statement from Worldcon Intellectual Property, which we linked last episode, said in the description of why he had been reprimanded because he had inaccurately made statements causing people to believe we are not properly servicing our marks or something to that effect. That's not a direct quote. Whereas the others were all censured because of the kerfuffle we discussed on the last episode. There was a great description on File 770 of the difference between being censured and reprimanded um where they kind of had a series of so they had a set of rebukes all the way from a slightly strange look to to immediate execution (laughs) we will put the link in the show notes listeners so if you're still watching the hugos after all of this and interested in what dave mccarty's thought processes were while going through all of this chris barkley sat down with him at capricorn and did an quite a long interview about 40 minutes and has put the entire thing unedited on the internet and it is one of those cases i believe where people believe that by giving being given a chance to tell an unvarnished their side of the story things will improve for them and i'm not sure this is the case what is your impression john and liz why would you ever do this interview (laughs) why it does seem very strange it doesn't I've not, I, full disclosure, I did not listen to it. I am, I am, I'm bad. I did not do my homework. Um, But I just don't, I have not seen anyone say anything about this interview that makes me think it was a wise thing to give this interview. And it, Hispania, Hispania's take on it was basically like, she always thought that Dave had a lot of contempt for fans, but a lot of respect for the institutions of fandom. And it just made her think that actually he has contempt for everything except Dave Mackay arrogant haughty and insolent we will put a link in the show notes listeners if you want your blood pressure to rise yeah so i just want to put out a couple of things which is you know uh, dave says there are two mistakes of substance in the stats that are currently published and it's like why didn't you check for this stuff and you know he goes on and talks about how like the sql query from the data in the ballot counts has a flaw and it's wrong and there's some bits that are wrong and i'm like what did you spend 90 days doing and also i think so, i mean a lot of his stuff about how he talks about how he feels he was delivering what they wanted to have in China is very, like, sort of paternalistic. Like, I felt I was delivering what they would want in China. It doesn't sound like... It sounds a bit more like kind of Dave saying, this is what I... My impression of what China would want is, and I delivered it, rather than what the Chinese fans actually wanted. Yeah, but I think that's Dave covering up for his Chinese people that he doesn't want to implicate, isn't it? It's difficult because we don't know. It could be, but there's a lot of very sweeping reactions about how, you know, their culture is different this this is like not what the chinese spirit is and i mean i know we generalize sometimes but it is kind of a very a lot of generalizations about like what china is and, and allows from yeah an external perspective it's a bit weird but then we don't have any interviews with the other bits of the administration team because all the other bits of the hugo administration and world Con committee are very very quiet so i guess we just have to take what dave gives us on the subject of chinese interference there is a post from chinese social media uh, which has been translated which some people are interpreting as a smoking gun for state interference in the hugos um we'll put a link in the show notes my view of this is that i can see why people are saying this is a smoking gun but it does not contain the word hugo nor the word award it talks about Chengdu in a way that you could read it to mean that there was involvement in the Chengdu program, or you could read it to mean there was involvement in the Chengdu awards, but it doesn't, it's not specific enough. We will put links in the show notes. You can form your own opinions, listeners. Uh, Tammy Coxon wrote some thoughts a few weeks ago on Facebook about the Hugo kerfuffle and one of the things she said was none of this matters because the Worldcon will almost certainly be defunct within 10 years there are almost no viable bids for future years and a serious lack of Worldcon running energy I'm going to say two things here which is firstly I I am tired 
of American fans saying the Worldcon is dying when we have just had a decade with the most international Worldcons we've ever had and there seems to be more interest in the thing worldwide than there has ever been at any point in its history. Secondly, there is a large amount of the way Worldcons are run to do with the Wussfuss business meeting and Robert's Rules of Order and all of that that mean people who try to go along and do things with the Worldcon end up being severely rebutted by people who are very big fans of those structures. And that puts people off. And if you are a part of that structure, then you are part of the reason why people do not want to engage with the Worldcon and volunteering for it. Because there are massive fan-run conventions all over the world, uh, so it's not true that they're dying more generally, and if there is a specific problem to Worldcon, we should be thinking about why and we should be addressing that. And so I just want to, it's a very quick, but I feel very strongly about both of those. And I think I want to give a shout out to Glasgow. They obviously have six months to go. Six months to go. Oh, my God, that's not long. But they have six months to go. But they have a huge team of engaged and enthusiastic volunteers, many of whom have never worked on a Worldcon before. And I'm sure that at least some of those people will still be enthusiastic after the convention. You know, there's no reason why they shouldn't be. And and this is the key to having more enthusiastic Worldcon runners going forward is get people in get them working get them engaged and get them happy with what they what they get to do and also don't mess them around another way we could involve more people in the world con and make them feel more involved in it is by not doing things like sneakily introducing amendments that prevent online voting while other people are out of the room dave oh who did that can you remind me who was the person who introduced that amendment I do feel a little bit sad that we haven't heard anything from kind of Finnish fandom about any repeat Finland bids, just because I really liked Finland and would like to go back. And I do feel maybe we have burnt out all the Finnish fans with one world con, which would be a shame. But, you know, we don't have to do one every, very often. Maybe in 15 years, they'll come back and do another one. I think doing one more than every decade would be foolish. And so 2027 would have been the earliest I would have expected a resurgent like Finnish bid. So we will see. It might be that there's a 28 or 29 bid, but we'll see. We've currently got a pattern where the UK is doing one every 10 years and Ireland is doing one every 10 years. And I feel like that's probably the absolute tippy top of what those two countries can manage. But yes, we're going to talk about all of this in more detail later, but we didn't cover it last episode. And I feel strongly that there are issues here which are going uh, undiscussed, which I think are important. Liz, do you pick? What pick you? Uh, I forgot about picks, to be honest. Um, You've read three million books, so you can definitely pick one of them. I know, but I've got to go and remember what I read. <laughs> Plus some of them were, a lot of them were for like Hugo nomination purposes, right? I'm going to pick a book which was eligible for Hugo last year, and I'm so sorry for the author that I took too long to read it. <laughs> okay. So I am going to pick a pair of books. Well, I'm going to pick a book, but it has homework, which is slightly irritating. I'm going to pick How to Find Zodiac by Jarek Kobik, which is a sequel to his book Motor Spirit, The Long Hunt for the Zodiac. Um, These are books about the Zodiac serial killer who killed at least five people in the 60s and 70s in San Francisco and the wider Bay Area. Motor Spirit basically sums up what we know about the Zodiac and does um, quite a lot of very good work. If you've seen David Fincher's excellent film Zodiac starring Mark Ruffalo and Robert Downey Jr. in amazing roles before they were in Marvel, which is a great film which I love, the book does an awful lot to unpick why the conclusions the film draws you to are probably not actually worth the uh, celluloid they're printed on. So it's a good film, but it doesn't tell you much about the murders. How to Find Zodiac is a work of fan history about a fanzine fan called Paul Durr who lived in Vallejo, California at the time of the murders. And it is absolutely fascinating because the book basically starts with Jarrett Kobik. Zodiac made a lot of very obscure pop culture references to comics and books of the day. Kobik said that he thought one of Zodiac's kind of ticks in his letters was probably a pop culture reference that no one had been able to find yet. And he expressed this suspicion to a friend and the friend said, it seems like the sort of shit you'd read in fanzines. And that sent Kobik down a rabbit hole. And there was a rabbit at the bottom of it. Spoiler. (laughs) Yes. 
So basically, long story short, Kovic starts out, he finds a fanzine fan who lived in Vallejo at the time, and he starts trying to exclude that person and basically, on the basis that he's probably not Zodiac, every other suspect is not in Zodiac, it will be possible to exclude this person. And the more he finds, the more he's like, oh no, this doesn't exclude him. Uh, and at the end of the the search, he's like, uh, there's nothing that excludes this person. And in fact, there's quite a lot that points to him. Now, this is a, a decades-old case, and like, it is not necessarily likely that this person is is the zodiac but it's very interesting walk through fan history and uh, investigative journalism but it also has one key thing which is zodiac left his fingerprints at the one of his crime scenes and this person served in the u.s military and their fingerprints are on file so at the point that anyone decides they want to know for sure whether this theory is true it will be possible to check because the relevant law enforcement agencies if they want to will be able to tell so it is at least a theory that can be firmly true false which i like but it's very interesting even if it's wrong the detail i most liked and this might be a little bit of a spoiler for the book is that at some point kovix turns up on doer's ex-wife's doorstep and says so i've been looking at this thing and she was like oh i've been wondering when you guys would turn up i will say the writing style is idiosyncratic and although i find the contents of the books very interesting i wish they were differently written is probably the kindest way to say it but it's clear a lot of work has gone into them. Who wants to do a pick next? I can do a pick. I am going to pick a book which is not really genre. It's got some, you know, tiny bits of sort of genre adjacent stuff in there, but it is mostly a kind of mainstream historical fiction. It is called Northwoods by Daniel Mason, which is basically a story about a house in the woods over time and all the people who live in that house in the woods over time or come to find that house in, in the woods. Um, and each bit is kind of written in a, a slightly different style about a slightly different set of people. Um, you know, some very mundane, some very exciting. Um, and it's also kind of about the nature of the, you know, it follows the nature as it as it evolves around the house, the trees, the animals, what is there in the woods and how it changes over time. And it's just kind of a very engrossing story about it. I got nominated for lots of awards and things. So, yeah, that was it. That's my whole thing. The Guardian says it's an epic of American lives. Yeah, he's fair enough. Which travels to the limits of what the novel can do. No, it doesn't really. But it's quite good. (laughs) It does sound interesting, though. I mean, unless you think it's, you know, having lots of kind of interlinked short stories that form a novel is pushing the boundaries of the novel, which I do not think is correct. But, you know. Not in science fiction. Or probably fantasy. I've read, um, what's name? That one book. Wurgen. Wurgen the Alien Love War? Was that it? That was a good book. Oh, Liz, that was one of the better Clarks that year, I thought. But yes. Um, Interlinked Stories is a very classic form of the genre. It's very much a way that novels can be. My pick this week is, because last week I did a print and play game as my pick and it went down really well, I've decided to do a different one this week. I promise my next three picks will not be print and play games. Lies. I did this one and I thought, well, this is a very interesting game and it's also the sort of game that might be very interesting to our listenership and here's why. This is a game called Fantasy Mapmaker that was designed by Harry Metcalf and was an entry in one of the Board Game Geeks contests last year. It's got a little bit of a build, so it uses cards, but you can get around the need for cards because they're only used to roll quests at the beginning of the game. And so you can um, you can either roll them on a chart or you can use pre-printed sheets that have your quest pre-rolled. The point about it is this is a roll-and-write game, which is a game where you um, roll dice and then draw things on, on your or your game sheet but in this case your game sheet is a blank fantasy map and you draw bits of your fantasy map onto the game and then you have quests which you get points for fulfilling so it's actually got quite a satisfying game in there because you have to score a certain number of points to win and this this appeals to my the gamer in me and it also makes you think oh if I put an island there I might be able to put a lighthouse on it afterwards for the big points and things like that and you end up with an actual map that you can frame or paste into your journal or use for your role-playing game or your or your novel situation. And in fact, I ended up with two castles in a very small space. And I was like, well, why would that be? And I created an entire backstory about two warring um, civilizations who both built castles in the space. And I was like, oh, you could you could actually spin an entire novel out of this. So it clearly works. Not that I'm going to. But I thought it was great. I thought it might be of interest to people in our 
listeners who do that, who, who, who do things that require maps. It's just a fantasy map maker at the moment. So I guess there's a, he could easily expand this to be a science fiction map maker or a steampunk map maker or a horror map maker or any sort of map maker you might like. But it was very good. Really enjoyed it. Um, and there will be a link in the show notes. And of course, it's free because, yeah, I mean, it's free until somebody decides that it's worth publishing, which I think we probably, probably somebody will decide this is worth publishing because it's pretty good. This is the sort of thing where um, it might well be very useful for role-playing games. I will say, like, like, how easy would it be to do other genres in this game? Um, yeah, Harry says he's about to make an announcement on this game, so there's a chance that, that all will become clear. But I think he is thinking about expansions. But if he decides not to think about expansions, what the Roland writers do, or what the print-and-play gaming fans do, is a thing called re-themes, where they take a game that is good but is not necessarily in the genre they like, and they remake it in the genre, genre they like. And that would be pretty simple to do, I think. Oh, and also this, this pick is a absolutely transparent excuse for me to stick my art in the chapter art i.e my finished map from my playthrough of this that would be good okay that was the octothought podcast and it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me it's goodbye from me I mean, obviously, the greatest idiocy of it was that um, the, the testament of Jesse Lamb beat Embassy Town. Have you guys both read Embassy Town? Yes. I have not read Embassy Town. And the testament of Jesse Lamb. I'd have to go back and reread them, but I think you're right that, like, from the vantage point of 12 years, I'd probably pick Embassy Town over the testament of Jesse Lamb. I'm going to pick either of them over Hall 03, so... Oh, yeah, yeah, that's fair. I've read Hall 03, and, like, I, I would describe it as fine. I have a bias towards works of science fiction which talk about how alien aliens are and how difficult language is. And Embassy Town does both of those and it does it better than possibly any other work of science fiction except for perhaps Arrival. And like, I can't think of any others that do it better. So like, I adore that book, but I am biased. The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod and Competech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.